Okay, if y'all could please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today we're going to be reading 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 1 through 2, on the Blue Bibles in front of you. That's going to be on page 588. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to take that one home with you. All right. Let's see here. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by it you have revealed yourself to your people. Lord, I pray that as we scour your word this morning to discover truth about you, I pray that our mind would be provoked to meditation and thought upon the truths of who you are. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be convicted by the nature of who you are, which would lead us to obedience, to love, to walk in fellowship with you, God. Lord, I thank you that you have provided this opportunity and you have brought these people here to hear your word. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give me strength to communicate your truth rightfully to rightfully take your word and divide it, that you would be magnified and you would be lifted up and your people would give you the honor and glory that you deserve. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Before we start the message this morning, I'd like to uh, make a general reminder to the church that we have, for those of you who may not know, it's in your bulletin, but I know sometimes we forget to look at those things, but we have on Wednesday nights a Bible study and prayer time. And we set that sign, uh, we set that time aside specifically because um, it's important that you not only hear the preaching of the word, but that also that we take time to dive into um, specific subjects and topics, scour the scriptures, have discussion. Those times are open for discussion so we can talk more freely. And if you have questions, those can be answered on certain topics. So I really encourage everyone um, who is able at, on Wednesday starting at 6 p.m., we gather for a time of fellowship. About 6.30, we'll have worship and prayer, and we will get started with the, the teaching discussion on Wednesday. So we really encourage you to be there. We also encourage you to be there because it's so crucial and important that the church is involved in prayer, that we learn to pray with each other, we learn to pray for each other, and so we really encourage you guys to be there. Um, this coming Wednesday, actually, um, Pastor Mark will be talking about who the Antichrist is. So if you're curious about those type of things, I really encourage you to show up this Wednesday. It will be fun discussion and topic. Okay, so as we jump into uh, my message this morning, uh, I feel it's necessary to kind of remind you is what where we're where I'm picking up from. So for several weeks, 
Pastor Mark was preaching concerning the wisdom of God. He taught on the wisdom of God. He taught on the knowledge of God and how that plays into God's wisdom. And this is actually an add-on to that is what we're going to be talking about this morning in terms of the attributes of God is God's foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God. So I was excited to take on this endeavor when the elders presented it to me as it's a interesting topic. And I must confess to you, when I began the study, I found something or I found or realized things I did not expect when I dove into the topic. Uh, to put it quite simply, there was a meme I saw on the internet the other day and it was uh, basically just a picture. But the caption on it said, this might not mean what you think it does. And that is definitely the case often in the common understanding of the, of the foreknowledge of God in our culture um, and how many of us have grown up to hear it. So um, what I hope to do this morning is I hope to clarify for you what the foreknowledge of God is. Uh, now, um, I hate to break it to you plainly, but... When we think of the foreknowledge of God, oftentimes we think that what it speaks of is what God foresees or foreknows. That God looks into the future and knows what will take place. Uh, So to put it bluntly, it cannot mean that. Well, what do you mean? Well, let me start by refreshing you on some of the things Mark taught on. So a few um, weeks ago when Mark taught on these things, he taught on the knowledge of God. So if we were paying close attention, he rightly communicated uh, something that should have piqued our critical thinking when he was preaching. He communicated that the knowledge of God is pure, instantaneous, and complete. His knowledge is completely retentive. All that can ever be known is laid clearly before God as though it is his current experience. Our experience of time is very, very limited. All we can experience or know is what is right before us. Everything that's behind us can gradually is gradually forgotten, and we remember pieces and fragments of those things. Everything before us, we do not know at all. <laughs> we might could make predictions, or we might could take guesses about what the future holds, but ultimately we can only experience and see what is currently before us. But you see, God is not like us. He is not limited by one segment of time. His knowledge is complete, lacking in nothing. Now think about that for a moment. If all of time is before God as though it is present, then what can God foreknow? What is there ahead of God to ever be known? If all of things, if all of time itself is before God presently, then what is, what can God ever foreknow? There is nothing for God to foreknow in the sense that we look into the future and know what will take place. To say that God foreknew something in terms of how we think of foreknowing things or how we foreknow things um, even according to how we read scripture and see things that might take place in the future, we would imply 
something about God, we would be placing upon God our understanding or our perspective of foreknowledge. And we would not be allowing the word of God to teach us what foreknowledge is. So, what is foreknowledge? Well, here's my goal this morning. My, I have three primary goals. One is to clearly communicate this truth to you from Scripture. Secondly, is to educate you and teach you what foreknowledge means. And finally, to exhort you at what that means for your life if those things are true. Now, this is a lot to cover, so thankfully the elders were gracious enough to grant me four hours this morning. So buckle in tightly. I'm kidding. We'll deal with this swiftly. So there's a danger in thinking the foreknowledge of God only speaks of what God knows or sees will take place in the future. Because first, we are restraining God, an eternal being, to our limited, finite understanding of time and what will take place ahead. I'll tell you the words of Peter, 2 Peter 3.8. says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. God is beyond our understanding of time. We can never hold him captive to how we accomplish our purposes. That's what we're doing when we think of the foresight of God as a future understanding. See, we experience things in the moment, and we take advantage of those things and leverage them for God's glory or our purpose that God has put in front of us. In the future, God does not do that. God is not taking a current moment and leveraging it for his benefit in the future. God has decreed and ordained what will take place. The second danger is one you are probably familiar with, but may not have noticed how it is rooted in how we see the foreknowledge of God according to his word. Many Christians throughout history, throughout the history of the church, have have argued about God's election. How does God elect his people? The scripture clearly communicates that there are an elect and those who are not elect. I come from a church background that will tell you that when the Bible speaks of God's election or God's elect, it is talking about those that God, by his foreknowledge, of the future, of future events, knew who would eventually come to faith and believe, and thus labeled them the elect. There are several problems with this understanding of the foreknowledge of God. It bends the will of God to the decisions of man. What it does is when we think of God's foreknowledge in this way, what we say is that in the beginning of time, Adam sinned, and then God looked into the future, and he said, who would eventually believe in me? And then seeing you, he then labeled you the elect. Well, Paul clears this right up in Acts 13. Um, He gives us a key insight into God's election. In Acts 13.48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed eternal life believed. So, according to Acts, who were those who believed in that day? Was it those who had faith? Of course. Scripture teaches us throughout that it is that you cannot believe in God if you do not have faith. But here's the tricky part. If you look closely, uh, Peter is explaining to us how that takes place. It gives us insight into where the faith has come from. 
What the scripture is communicating is that those who have faith are those who have been appointed by God to eternal life. If you are not appointed by God for eternal life on that day, when Peter was preaching, you would not have had faith and believed. But if you were appointed by God to eternal life, then on that day God granted you faith to believe. This is not God bending his plan according to the will of men. This is God choosing men and changing the nature of their hearts to want him. It is not about God knowing beforehand they would believe. It is about God choosing or appointing them beforehand to believe. There are many other scriptures that point this out, but let's press on. So when we begin to, so we see these issues, there's clearly problems here in, in, in limiting our understanding of the foreknowledge of God of just seeing future events. So what does it mean? Well, it's important first that we define our terms. So when we see a word in scripture that might seem a bit confusing to understand, like foreknowledge, it's, it's, it's important we don't just immediately go to our modern interpretations of complex words in the Bible. It's important we don't just open up Webster's Dictionary and say, what does Webster say about, the fore, about foreknowledge? We must allow scripture to define its own terms. Because let's not forget here, we're talking about a word that was used in a different culture, in a different language, about 2,000 years ago. A modern understanding of a word is not always problematic when reading our English Bibles, but we must make sure we're not imposing upon God our humanly thoughts and then interpreting his word that way. Uh, a complex word in scripture, I'll give you a plain example of this, is when you think of the word flesh in the Bible. It seems like a simple word. Surely he's just talking about the physical body, but that's not always the case. Flesh in scripture can refer to the physical body. It can refer to the sinful nature of man. And it can also refer to the body of Christ, which nourishes believers. One simple word can be used in different ways. Context is crucial when we understand what God is saying. So this can be a little bit difficult because foreknowledge is only mentioned twice in the entire Bible. Both are in the New Testament, Acts 2.23 and 1 Peter 2.1. And I will talk about these, but let's first look at Scripture and see what we can understand. And here's why I want to do this. Because it could be very easy if we got up here and I taught a simple lesson on Greek and concerning the foreknowledge of God and we pressed on for there. But I know for most of you that's not very helpful. And for me, I don't feel quite equipped to do that. So what I hope to do this morning is help you to look into your word and see how you can discover plainly the meaning of God's word. So first, let's consider the Old Testament. When you examine the words no known or no, or no, known, or new, in connection with God in the Old Testament, it refers to an intimate relationship and favor with God. So, for example, Exodus thirty three seventeen, and the Lord said to Moses, "This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name." This is not to mean that God knows some people's names and not others. We know that. 
uh, Pastor Mark already explained. In the knowledge of God, God knows all things. He's not confused about some people's names as opposed to others. What this is indicating is a special intimate relationship that God had with Moses. It is talking about a relationship of proper spiritual affection between Moses and the Father. Jeremiah 1.5 says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You see here how God uses the idea of having being, of, of being know, of knowing Jeremiah in direct relationship with his consecrating Jeremiah and appointing him to be a prophet before he was even born. In Hosea, we see it used in the negative sense. Hosea 8 4 says, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Was God unaware of what Israel was doing at that time? Was God unaware that they were establishing kings? Of course not. He knew all that was taking place. What he means is there was no intimate connection or favor or relationship between him and those kings. These kings were, in fact, appointed by God to rule unfaithfully. We know that according to God's sovereignty. That God would use their unfaithfulness to glorify his own name. So he knew they were serving and he even ordained and appointed it. He appointed them to serve uh, as they served wickedly and knew God not and honored him not as their God. They did not fear the Lord. In all these passages of the Old Testament, the word knew or known is used to indicate intimate relationship and favor with God or the lack thereof. It spoke of a loving relationship that God had with Moses. It talked of, of Jeremiah's being appointed by God. And it also spoke of those who did not know God and rebelled against him, did not fear him. So now let's consider the New Testament. Matthew seven twenty three says, And then I declared to them, I, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't intend to overhammer a nail here, but we must ask the question, did Jesus, is there going to be a time in eternal judgment where men stand before God and God looks at them and says, and Jesus looks at them in judgment and say, oh, wait, wait, hold up, hold up, angels, pull up the, the, the book of records here. I don't, who is this person? I don't know them. No, that's not what it's speaking about at all. If you look up a few, two verses up above this verse in Matthew, what you'll find is what he's speaking of is those who claim to know him, claim to praise him, but yet obeyed him not. They did not know the Lord. So although claiming to have a relationship, when they stood before him, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And because God, so when Jesus says, I never knew you, what we can see there is what Jesus is saying is he never loved them. And because God is an eternal being, if he did not love you then, he does not love you now. For God's emotions are not like ours. They're not passionately loving one minute and hating you the next minute. 
If God has ordained, if God has established you for grace before time, then his love, you can be confident, is set upon you. He does not waver in his thinking. It's not like we treat God good one moment and he loves us and the next he hates us. That is not how God is. He is always consistently a loving God. If past, present, and future are all before God, then his knowing you has always been, just as his not knowing you has also always been. John ten fourteen, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Here in John, Jesus is speaking of those whom he intimately loves and cares for. Those whom he shepherds are those whom he loves. And those whom he loves are those whom he knows. They are the ones he protects, saves, feeds, seeks after, leads. Those are among the known of Christ. Now, you might see already where I'm going with this, but just hang on for a minute because there's more. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, But if anyone knows God, he is known by God. Paul jumps right to the point in making it clear in 1 Corinthians, we know, uh, we know God knows all people, but he does not know all people. Only those who love God are truly known by him. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone whose name, whose name, who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. If you are known by God and know him, you will depart from iniquity. Why would you depart from iniquity just if you know God? Because this speaks of a deep relationship, which is beyond just pure knowledge of someone. And it talks about knowing somebody intimately, a relationship which provokes the emotions of the person who is known. Eternity, past, present, and future are established by God's grace. So, let's consider foreknowledge. So now if we get, now that we have a general understanding of how the Bible speaks of the knowledge of God, what it means when it says God knows somebody or does not know somebody, let's consider the text in the New Testament that speak of the foreknowledge of God. So first, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 2.23. It says this, This Jesus, delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you might be thinking, reading this, well, couldn't it just be talking about what God foreknew would take place? Well, of course, when we think of God's foreknowledge, we do, we can acknowledge rightfully that God does know in our terms what is ahead and what will take place. But that is not exactly what the scripture is communicating. When you read this passage carefully, you might notice that the foreknowledge of God here does not refer to the acts of the crucifixion, but to the person crucified. This is amazing. When Peter is preaching here, what Peter is 
preaching here is that Christ was not only crucified because it was the plan of God, but he was crucified because of how he knew God and how he was known by God. Men did not just crucify Christ because God had ordained it, although he had, and that is true. They crucified Christ because he was the Christ. Known by the Father and knowing the Father perfectly. If you drop Jesus right into our culture today, they would likewise find another good reason to crucify him. Why? Because it's who he is and who he knows. It is the nature of how Christ is known by the Father and how, and how the Father is known by the Son that it makes Christ who he is in his very nature. Think about that. Remember, they didn't kill Jesus because he healed the sick, healed the lame, made the blind see, or made the blind see and the deaf hear. They killed Jesus because he claimed to be the only one who truly knew the Father and to truly be known by the Father. And the only way to the Father was by knowing Him. Which is also interesting because in John 6, Jesus makes it clear that the only way you know him is if he first knew you. That's amazing. It was how God foreknew Christ that was the cause of his death and resurrection on the cross. And it was how Christ knew the Father that he was able and willing to perfectly fulfill that call And redeem men to himself. The word for new is what we see explained in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, 29 through 30, it says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, it said. Paul is explaining to us that there is a oneness in the knowing, in the foreknowing of someone by God and the predetermination for them to be conformed into the image of Christ. His foreknowledge of us is his predestining us to be conformed to the image of his son. This is highlighted in the next sentence when it says, those whom he predestined, he also called. So we must ask ourselves, what came first, the chicken or the egg? The calling or the predestination? The predestination precedes the calling. The predetermining for salvation was decreed before you were even called. When we think about what I mentioned earlier about why it's wrong to limit when the scripture talks of the foreknowledge of God to merely what God sees in the future, this is where it becomes so crucial. Because if we think that it's only speaking of what God sees in the future and that he looks into the future and he sees those that are his and then he labels them them the elect or the predestined, what we've just done is a complete reversal of what Paul clearly explains right here. Instead of saying, 
that God predestined them and then called them, what we're saying is that God called them, or is that God called them and then labeled them predestined. Here we also see that God's foreknowledge does not refer to events, but persons. Look closely in this passage, it's in the pronouns. It is not what God predestined, it's whom he predestined. It's not what God foreknew, it's whom he foreknew. This is a relational word in scripture. God's foreknowledge is not about what God foresaw, it's about whom he foreknew. It is not mere knowledge of events, it's about whom he has chosen to be conformed into the image of his son through intimate relationship with him by the Holy Spirit. God's foreknowledge is his, God's foreknowledge of his people is his decree for them. Now we return to our text that was read this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. It says this, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So when this passage uses the word foreknowledge, what is it referring to? It's referring to the elect those who were chosen by God to be in the very situation that they were in. You see, in this passage, Peter is talking to the Jews who had been dispersed across the land. And what he's comforting them with is you are in this situation, one, because you are known by God. And two, because in his foreknowledge, he planned for you to be dispersed. So take courage. Right at the end, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The, the, to have the understanding that you are known by God, that you are, that this is all happening according to his foreknowledge of you is a crucial encouragement to God's people. He had decreed their election and dispersion before time began. And that was an encouragement to the church that their circumstances were not, uh, that their circumstances were all according to the foreknowledge of God concerning them. It does not say that God was merely aware of their election and dispersion because of his foreknowledge, but that their election and dispersion was according to his foreknowledge. It is according to the decree made by God beforehand, determined to take place by his sovereign hand, and accomplished by his providence. So if this is true, what does that mean for us? Well, it's important that we are aware of the dangers of misunderstanding the foreknowledge of God. If you were to ask the question, so on what grounds do we have to limit the foreknowledge of God to only a foresight of future events, there's none. We saw, as we saw, when scripture talks about the foreknowledge of God, it is always speaking of his personal election of his people, not events. 
It speaks of how God has chosen his people beforehand. When the scripture talks about God knowing you, it does not talk about God knowing just what you will do. It is, it is talking about how God will know you intimately. The idea of the foreknowledge God only speaks of what God knows, does not only speak about what God knows in the future. That's a completely unbiblical idea. The I, um, if you get rid of the idea of God's predestination, then you must be, then you must be up to, then you must leave it up to the natural man to choose God. If we say that the foreknowledge of God only speaks of what he knows to take place, of what he saw that you would do, then what you're saying is what God did in his saving of his people is he left it in the hands of his people. Well, this is completely wrong. The Bible teaches that God has chosen his people. That's why it uses the word very directly, his elect. And if we go down the rabbit hole of saying that it only speaks of those whom God foreknow, then we have to accept the fact that we have to leave it in men's hands to turn to God. And if we must leave it in man's hands to turn to God, well, we know according to Romans, there is no hope for men. There is no hope. This comes from a worldly idea, which was brought up in the Enlightenment, which I won't get into the details. You can actually talk to Tyler. He talked about it several weeks ago in our men's group about this subject. But it was brought up in the Enlightenment era where men, in order to boast their pride and their intellect, began to teach principles that it was the culture that was corrupting man, not man itself. The idea was taught that if you leave man in the woods by himself, untouched by culture and untouched by society, he would be a relatively pure person and relatively good. He would seek what's best for him and those around him, and so things would go well. Well, Scripture tells us quite the opposite. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? James 1, 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. You do not sin because someone influences you or teaches you to sin. You create ways to sin in your own heart to serve your own wickedness. If you leave a man in the wilderness, untouched by gospel truth, untouched by law and order, what you will find is that person will find all kinds of ways to serve themselves in wickedness, so much so that they will become worse than even the beasts of the field. He will conjure up all kinds of wickedness unrestrained. And the law of his heart will testify against him. Romans 1 tells us that. But don't give us, don't get me wrong, Romans also tells us that when men persist in this unrighteousness, their conscience is seared and that conviction goes away. If men were left unmanaged completely by God, world, the world would break out in unlawful, unrighteous chaos. The idea of man having an inherent goodness is alive the devil and only boasts the pride of wicked men and leads not to repentance. It is a lie to justify the pride of clever self-idolaters. We must be willing to take a scalpel and tediously scrutinize our understanding of God so that we will magnify Him. There may be some here this morning, or some who may hear this, if you share this later with your friends, that will make the argument, well, that's not fair. To which I will respond, 
in the spirit of the Apostle Paul, Who are you, O man, to say to the creator of the entire universe and all living things that exist, How or why have you made me this way? You cannot create a mere speck of sand. You can't predict what hair will fall off your head tomorrow. Who are we to question the workings of God? But now think with me how amazing the foreknowledge of God is. If the foreknowledge of God speaks of Him intimately knowing us for all eternity, then we have all the reason to boast. But not in our ability to choose God, but in His ability and willingness and mercy to choose us. We can take joy in the foreknowledge of God as believers. Romans 8.28 tells us, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purposes. So hold on a moment. So what Paul is saying here is, is that God does not just look into the future and figure out a way to save you, but instead that God intimately looks into your life and is planned how he will pull you out of your sin in your darkness and reconcile you to himself and then keep you there and sustain you there and walk intimately and closely with you there. This is not the work of man, but the work of God. What a joy to be known and foreknown by God. You have heard it said that God's speaking is his doing. Well, we know now, according to the foreknowledge of God, that his doing is his foreknowing. Therefore, if we see, if we say God did something because he foreknew something was going to take place, we have put the cart before the horse. But we have reason to rejoice in saying that if we are here today, it is because we are foreknown. If we have found grace, it is because he reached out despite our own sin and has saved us according to his good plan. We can find assurance in the foreknowledge of God. God's foreknowledge is his decree, his predestining your election before you were even aware of it, before you were even born, as he told Jeremiah. Your grace-filled relationship with God did not start when you decided to believe. It started when God decreed. Why does God choose to save some and not others? Ultimately, His glory. But for those who are in Christ this morning, you can find all assurance and peace, all the assurance and peace you need in the foreknowledge of God. When the struggles of life come crashing down, when we find ourselves in those moments where we feel like the sailor in a boat being knocked around in the ocean and the winds and the waves crashing, and we say, what is going to happen next? Am I going to be tossed in the sea and drowned? Are we going to make it through? You can rest in the fact that you were foreknown by God. That's exactly what Peter is telling the dispersed Jews. Find peace. And being known and foreknown by God. For if I'm tossed into the sea and drowned, then I will be even greater, finally acquainted with the one who has saved me. And if I endure to the end, then I will have a wonderful testimony of his grace. We can find assurance that if God foreknows you, he will keep you to the end. God is not like us. He doesn't start things. He does not finish. For he who began a good work in you 
He will see it through. We can find confidence in the foreknowledge of God. Romans 8, 36-39 says, For your sake we are all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our our, our Lord. This is real, beloved. How often do us Christians find ourselves overwhelmed with the weight of even our own sin? Or even fear a future temptation. I'm sure many of us have found ourselves in that place thinking, Am I truly saved? Or if I'm this week now, how can I have any assurance that I'll endure in future temptation? I survived today, will I make it tomorrow? What if suffering in this country gets worse? Will I be faithful? Well, let me encourage you. You are not here today because of how much you know about God. You are here today because he first foreknew you. Do you realize what that means? God is not phased by the sin of Adam. He did not see Adam fall and say, Great, look what has happened in my wonderful creation. Now what will I do? Well, I don't know. I'll sit here and then let me just look into the future. Let me use my omniscience and look into the future and see who will be saved. Okay, good. There's some. Okay, well, there's some who are going to end up believing. And so I'm thankful that I can at least get that. Let me just kind of do a few things around their lives to kind of bless them. Not at all. Not at all. God looked at the sin of Adam and said, Although you sinned against me, I will have my people. Why? Because I have foreknown them. I've foreknown them. And life and death and hell or heaven, angels, demons, no one can separate God's people from Him. He says, If they are mine, it does not matter your sin. I will redeem my people because I have known them and I will not lose them. What an amazing hope we have. That our dependence is not upon our own faith, but His grace. He determined before time began that when Adam would fall, He would not forsake His people. He determined that He would save His people despite their sin. So let me tell you, believer... If he did not, or if he did that before time began, you can have confidence he will continue in his purpose until the end. He will give you the, he will give you strength to flee temptation. He will give you the spirit to sanctify the body. He will call you and he will conform you. Your confidence does not rest upon your knowledge of God. It rests upon his foreknowledge of you. And isn't it amazing to think how wonderful God is that in this intricate work of his providence, it is by the knowledge of him that we have faith. But he didn't wait for us to know him. He called us because he knew us intimately before time so that we we would know him. 
So in all of these things, we should always give thanks for the foreknowledge of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You can be thankful because God chose you. You can be thankful because God foreknew you, and in his foreknowing you, he has ordained for all the things in your life to take place. He has planned it, that he would use these things, so that way you would know him. Because of his great grace, we have been saved. Take a moment, look around. Seriously, take a moment, look around at all the faces around you. Look at those that you know to be brothers and sisters in Christ and realize that these are the foreknown of God. The church is the foreknown of God being made known to us. When we look around and we see God working in people's lives, we ought to rejoice because what we are seeing is the manifestation of God's grace. We're saying, wow, look at all these. That God has said, I will not leave you in your sin. But because I knew you, I will save you. What a wonderful thing to contemplate. We are, we are, we should rejoice when we see the wonderful work of God working in each of our lives intricately and intimately so that we would know Him and glorify Him. This is worthy of our thanks. Oh, that we should spend our days and hours, uh, days and hours in our lives Just offering thanks to God. We should offer thanks in our hearts in the moments of stillness in our lives. By offering sweet prayers of thanks to God. We should think of these things. We should think of of God foreknowing us. As being his will. That we would love him and know him. We shouldn't take them for granted. We should take the still moments of our lives to contemplate this. To give thanks. To pray. To be still. And know that he is God. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which, with which He has blessed us in the beloved. So why has God chosen you? Why has God revealed his foreknowledge of you in appointing you for grace? So that you would spend this day and every day on into eternity giving him glory with every breath and effort you have. Because he is merciful and wonderful towards you. Because according To his foreknowledge, you have been appointed for grace and praise. By his foreknowledge, you were appointed salvation. And by his foreknowledge, you have been appointed a worshiper in spirit and in truth. So let us rejoice in this always church. Let us set in our in our times of prayer, in our times in the study, and give thanks for the foreknowledge of God concerning us. Let's pray. Father, 
Lord, we thank you for your foreknowledge, God. We thank you that you did not wait upon us to call upon you. God, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin. God, we thank you that when man fell and men went on pressing on in their sin and idolatry, you didn't set in despair. You didn't cast us off. You didn't leave us in our unrighteousness. But you chose to know us. By your grace, you called us out of this darkness before time. You appointed us to be worshipers, to be those who give thanks and praise. So Lord, I pray that by your spirit we would do that. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in our heart. That as we contemplate the for, your foreknowledge of us, you're appointing us to election, pointing us to rest in your grace, that we would do that. Rest in your grace. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.